Welcome to the InVino Fab Podcast. I'm Laura. And I'm Patrice. We're co-host for the InVino Fabulum. That means in wine story. We think there are tales that need to be told about women, wine, work, and what's happening in the world. This podcast was created to have a chat about a few of these things and more. Tune into this podcast to learn and share as we talk about passion projects, recent reads, and random wine facts. Today, I'm really excited to share with you uh, another special guest in my career-changing format because I might be seeking my own life to answer questions. Welcome, Laura Gogia, to the show. Laura Gogia designs, researches, and engages in faculty development for digital learner experiences in higher education and continuing education settings. Before she became the senior design strategist at iDesign and a freelance instructional design consultant, Dr. Gogia was an obstetrician and gynecologist for a rural Virginian community. She received her PhD in educational research and evaluation and her MD degree, both from Virginia Commonwealth University. Laura, welcome to the pod. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. It's like a meta podcast now. It's a Laura Laura podcast. I know. So are we going to get confused about who's talking? Laura? Laura? Nah, he'll talk more because you've probably more to say than I do. So um, let's start it off. Skim your resume and tell us a little bit about your career path and what it looks like. All right. Well, um, like a lot of people, I started out in college um, with, a, well, I had a double major, biology and history. Um, I decided to go a pre-med route and I went to medical school. And while I was med- in medical school, I accepted a scholarship for the state of Virginia. That would mean that um, they were paying for college. I mean, they were paying for medical school, and I would go work in an underserved area of Virginia. And one of the reasons why that's so important is because it limited the sort of fields that I could choose from. So by accepting the scholarship, I was agreeing to work in primary care or OBGYN, and I was making that decision in the first year of medical school without knowing anything about anything. Wow. It's a long time to commit, though. I'd like to back up on your other major. Hold up. History. Hello, fellow history nerd. Yes. Uh, What did you study in history? What was your interest? Uh, My focus was um, colonialism Mm. around the world. My favorite classes were like the history of Brazil, the history of India. Um, Those were my favorite. And, you know, I was in history. I, I went down that pathway as a release uh, and to do something completely different from biology. I needed a space to read stories, to write essays, to do something completely different from kind of like my quote unquote day job, Mm -hmm. um, which I was very into bench research in college. So I was working in a lab about 40 hours plus doing full-time schoolwork. Yeah. So more achiever is what you're saying. A bit of a slacker is what you were. Yeah. Yeah. A bit of a slacker, but yeah, the, the history was, was more, um, my relaxation space. Um, And also because just something was missing from the multiple choice and the, the, the hard sciences of bench research. So, so, Cool. So you go to med school. You go to med school. You get kind of uh, pigeonholed because you're worried about your economics of not having scholarships, Mm -hmm. right? So this was all on my own dime. So I was worried. So I got my scholarship and got into my clinical rotations and figured out that primary care was not the space for me, which is how I, of the choices that I had, that's kind of how I got into OBGYN. Um, 
And so I did my residency in obstetrics and gynecology, which is a very interesting specialty in that it, unlike, it's, it's very unique in that it's partially primary care, it's partially surgical. In many ways, you can look at like pregnancies as like uh, projects. Nine-month right. projects. There's a there's a goal. We got we got a serious outcome going on there. You want the baby to come out, and then you move on with your life. So you have these projects that you don't typically see, like in primary care. I think that project is longer than nine months for the mother. I know. Well, then you, yeah, yeah. So there's a difference between being the doctor in the scenario versus being the parent in the scenario. For Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. So anyway, it's that it's that kind of half and half approach um, that you don't get in a lot of specialties. Um, so that that appealed to me. Um, did a residency out in Cincinnati, which is oh, yeah. probably one of the hardest four years of my life. Came back home to Virginia to to you know fulfill my my scholarship obligations, and that's how I ended up in rural Virginia in a tiny little town called Tappahannock. And I didn't practice OB. I just did gynecology because I, I really preferred the surgical practice um, over the obstetrics practice, turns out. Practiced there in a solo situation where I was the only practitioner, um, which also was a huge kind of turning point in my life was before that, I had always been a loner you know, the overachiever. I mean, I, I had friends, I loved friends, but, you know, I, in terms of school and learning, it was all about individual achievement. Um, so it didn't even phase me when I decided to go out to the middle of nowhere, right out of training and be the only practitioner. How old were you when you started? Like, that's, that's a lot to take on, like, after that length of school. So you probably were, like, late 20s? That- I was um, I was 26. Yeah. I was a new mother. I had a, a child under the age of one at home. Wow. I had a, a husband who was also a surgeon, but he was practicing in the big city. Um, I was commuting 40 miles. I was 40 miles away from the next hospital. Wow. Um, and I was a good hour and a half away from any physician who could have helped me if I got in trouble in the OR. And so there I am in a situation where it never even occurred to me up to that point because I'd done all of my training in urban centers, urban academic centers, right? It never occurred to me what it meant to be completely alone um, in a rural area where um, I had to work with pharmacy to develop what sort of drugs I needed in the hospital. I had to outfit outfit the emergency department with anything that I might need if there was like an emergency delivery. That's something that they had had for like the last eight years. So I had to figure out what that meant. I had to develop all of my own OR trays. So as far as the instruments that I would need to practice, you know, these are all things that had been put, they were in place in everywhere else that I had worked. At a larger facility, you have people that do a number of these jobs and positions and roles, and you had to... You have colleagues, you have teachers, you have people who've been doing it for years, and I walked into a situation where they hadn't had a gynecologic surgeon for eight years. There were no other gynecologists. Um, In fact, the nursing staff didn't know how to do the preps that I needed to operate, and if I hadn't 
been the type of person who was standing in the room during my first surgery. Um, I watched them prep. I, in fact, wanted to be involved with the surgical prep because that's just who I was. Um, They didn't know how to prep the patient. But yeah, so I learned so much. That's when I figured out what it meant to have colleagues and not have colleagues. And in the next couple of years when I was there struggling to still learn because, you know, you don't know everything right out of training, right? Um, right. You're like 26, you get thrown into the fire and you're like sink or swim, figure it out and forget the adulting classes and 26 year olds take like, this is like serious, like yeah. professional get you started. And you have no other facilities beside by you or anyone doing your same position for 40 miles at least. Yep. Wow. So, and, and I struggled with professional development so it's like how, and because this was also a time period of great technological change within the field. Um, people were shifting from open and vaginal hysterectomies to laparoscopic hysterectomies. Right. And I had seen the beginning of that trend in residency. But when I was in training, when I was in residency, the attendings, um, my teachers were learning how to do it together. Like they hadn't gotten to the point of teaching us how to do it. They were learning and, and figuring the figuring out for themselves. And then I moved. And so I missed that training. And Mm -hmm. so here I am on my own. And yes, I could go out and learn. I can't tell you how many um, different um, conferences I went to. And I went and I, I watched other practitioners do them and I practiced with them and everything. But at the end of the day, I was coming home to my own space all by myself without the backup I needed. So I wasn't going to have my learning curve affect somebody. Right? Yeah, it's a, it's a huge liability and like yeah. a risk, right? Like, so what yeah, if just not going to do it? Right. Yeah, it's it's not safe for you or the patient. You're thinking you're thinking about that, the patient care. Really, it was kind of interesting. Within five years of leaving training, despite all of the things that I tried to do in order to keep up, I was out of date. And so this idea of being washed up in my like early 30s, knowing that I couldn't do cutting-edge surgical procedures, it just got to me. And I, w- I did not want to be that person. Um, and so that, along with a bunch of other things, and really just not being able to create community. Yeah. Um, and knowing that I needed it, but not knowing how to get it, um, led to burnout. And I didn't want to be washed up. I mean, if I'm going to do something, I want to do it right. So, yeah, I can understand that. But see, are you starting to see where this is going? It's because yeah. I knew, I knew the problem was I couldn't find community. And, of course, there was a lot of beating myself up because it's not like um, I never thought before going into practice that I needed community. I was not that person. I was, you know, your competitive, hardcore overachiever. And I remember standing in um, Jamestown. I had taken one of my kids to Jamestown. um, And Jamestown has this great exhibit where it's comparing um, the... uh, 
a, a Native American population, um, you know, their tools, like how, how they farmed and, and how they traded um, the um, indigenous populations in the U.S. versus um, what was going on in Europe versus what was going on in, in Africa. And I was in over and over again, it's like, this is what the tools look like. This is what, you know, the money looked like. And I just kept noticing that um, the African um, exhibits and the European exhibits were very similar. And then the indigenous populations, they were in a whole different place. And it just hit me somewhere in the middle of that exhibit that what I had been missing was that crosstalk in the same way that um, the, the African and European populations were having a lot of crosstalk, the indigenous population over here was completely isolated. And I literally started just bawling. I mean, it was a very emotional time in my life anyway, but I was just bawling in the middle of this Jamestown exhibit, um, understanding that that's what had happened to my medical career and that there was not a whole lot, having quit at this point, there was not a whole lot I could do about it. And so it was time to figure out what to do with my life now. And so that was one of the major contributing factors. It came around later. Okay, so here I am in my mid-30s, definitely needed something to do with my life and my time. I tried staying at home. I tried cooking. I started a catering business because I figured if I was going to stay at home, I needed to learn how to cook. And the only way to do that was to turn it into a business. So I was catering for a while. <laughs> no, no, no low, watch a TV and try a recipe. No, let's start a business then. No, I mean, the only way I can do anything is if I start a business I, or if it's, it's either high risk or it's don't do it at all. So yeah. So I'm call you high career realist is maybe the category I'll put you in. So I think that's good. You may use that for future so yeah okay so yeah so I had I had this whole like catering thing going on for a little while but that wasn't going to cut it wait wait can you tell me what you made like what was your thing that you made for catering of fusion oh so I'd like just start playing around so I understood that the basics of cooking is like the acid and the heat and the sugar and the um salt and so I just started playing around with ingredients that I got at the store. And um, my clients were all physicians that either worked with my husband or that I had known. And so obviously part of this is they're just feeling sorry for me. But part of it is that they didn't want to cook for themselves. And <laughs> right. so I would send out a menu of stuff that I was going to cook that week. They would order and I would cook it up, put it in these containers and put it in a fridge out in my garage so that they, and let's leave the door unlocked so that they could stop by anytime they wanted to pick up their orders for the week. And they would leave all the money in a envelope in the refrigerator. And I got to tell you, just having that number, like the twenties cash, I've never had so much cash in my hands before <laughs> in my entire life. I felt like an ATM machine. Uh, so you were like early food service. You could have kept going because this is the th- we know this is a thing now. People order food prepackaged yes. and delivered. So your early food service meets semi Nosrats uh, four elements meets uh, business. I love this by yeah. the way. It was great. That's awesome. How long yeah. did you do that for then? Um, that was over a six month period while I was also taking some. Um, nonprofit um, sort of project management courses through a a local nonprofit that does professional education for other nonprofits. 
And the reason why I did that was, first of all, I knew I needed something in my life where I would go crazy. Um, And it was just easy, and it was there, and I could get in a class the week after I quit practicing, and I knew I needed that. Um, My only safe space at that point is I knew I loved school, so I needed to get in classes just to stay sane. And also, I saw it as a networking opportunity, and that's precisely what it became, was an opportunity to talk to people, uh, do exactly what you're doing right now. Mm -hmm. I used this this professional development program um, to talk to people who were doing different things, meet the the faculty members who were involved, do informational interviews with them. And that's actually how I got into my PhD program was I one of the teachers of one of the classes said, you need to talk to this faculty member over at the local university because she's into medical education anyway. And you're saying that you need help figuring out what to do with your life. I think she'd just like to talk to you. Why don't I just do an email introduction? So she and I met and talked and she recruited me to her um, master's of ed um, adult learning classes not to the program because at that point I was super jaded about the idea of more education. I was also worried about cost and um, I just didn't know, but she was like, come on, Laura, just enroll in a class. What else are you going to do with your time? Like that was literally her whole argument. I was like, she's exactly right. What else am I going to do with my time? And so I backed into what was first a master's in ed and that same faculty member said master's level is not going to um you're not going to be okay with that you need to go to the phd level and so the whole set of the faculty members at my local university just found this whole process so interesting that they kind of they bended stuff and they just let me like you know, I paid for the classes, of course, but I, I didn't actually enter the program for like another year. And I enrolled in the program officially. I did the whole curriculum for adult ed. And they were trying to push me towards, you know, the next step of doing the dissertation. I was like, you know what? No, I need, there's not enough research and methods in this. Also, if you look at my background, it's, it's not a good career path for me. It's not going to work. I don't have the other background that the other students in this career path and this, this program have. So how are we going to fix this to buy me more time to get me skills and experiences where I can actually go somewhere after I leave school? And so I made a U-turn, went back, did all the coursework in research and evaluation. I changed the focus of my dissertation so it really was focused on assessment which is classroom assessment. So that's how I made the connection to research and evaluation. But it was really about digital designs and how students learn in open digital spaces. Connected learning, networked learning, open education, open educational resources, you know, that kind of digital area. It worked for me was because I had recognized back when I was at Tappahannock by myself and I couldn't find community. If I had been able to find that online space, I might still be a doctor today. A couple of things you said, which was really interesting. Um, you do like learning a lot. So that's one thing, but learning also, it sounds like offered you a bit of structure and, and community as you put it, when you came from very isolating space so that kind of reconnected you and rekindled where you're going I think you're right like talking to folks uh, whether it's in a formal program 
or I actually think what you did is really smart and I encourage lots of folks to do it as a non-degree seeking initially. Um, to much people's surprise, there's a number of programs that allow you to start a couple classes and enter into a program, but why not try it out first and see if you like trying on like some sort of learning is really a cool way to do it. And But you but found yeah. people to connect you though to those spaces and places and people and community. <laughs> And I completely agree with you that the learning environment is what gave me the structure just to figure out how to talk with people. Mm. So when I was in that first space, the nonprofit organization space, I tried to go to lunch with some, some other people in the class and they said something and I completely went off on something related to, um, to menstruation and um, prescriptions um, and uh, school policies on absences and mm. Yeah, I just kind of go off. I, I went Not off. Not shocking. On, you are educated in that area, so go and on. I, I went off on a women's health moment when I was sitting <laughs> at a table full of uh, male uh, Baptists. Um, yeah, uh, it, it, the the way they looked at me I was like, oh my. And it was a lunchtime, and it just wasn't appropriate for the audience that was at the table. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's nothing wrong about talking about menstruation, but it wasn't what I needed to be talking about with those folks to connect with those folks at the table. And that's when I figured I was going to completely, like, I was going to have to change um, the way I interacted with people, like, just break it all down and start over again. And so I actually practiced through these courses and I took a group dynamics course in the adult ed curriculum. And I, I took that class deeply, (laughs) not just to get the grade, but I mean, every single interaction in that class, I broke down, I thought about, I practiced, I reflected on, um, and it was tough work. I walked out of those classes with like sweat rings. It was true therapy. Um, yeah. So that, that's uh, interesting. No, I think we need more people around some tables to do more group dynamic work. Um, I think what you said was interesting earlier on that you never found the need for community earlier in learning, but it sounds like your later learning experiences. And I don't know if this shifts as, as we get older um, and, take courses like I'd say if anyone taking a class above 30 will know that they are learning differently than they did when they were like 18 25 like you just have a different mindset of what and how you want to learn and it sounds like you were more collaborative connected like involved than you were in undergrad when you're writing oh well it's because I learned my lesson (laughs) I mean I, I I don't trust completely individual learning at this point. And so in, when in my PhD school, when I was doing my research, um, the stuff that I was doing my research on, like connected learning, not my, my school was not a huge center for that. Mm. I, mean, I had a couple of people who were like high up in, in, in the conversations around this sort of thing. So I had one or two people who were like really deeply connected in this digital um, education com- community, but no one else at my school was. And so a lot of my uh, work on Twitter was about trying to find that community, trying to find my community of teachers uh, and, and colleagues, of course, but teacher, you, know, you learn from your peers, right? So I was trying to find that community out there um, 
to help me with my learning to make sure that I was actually learning what I needed to do to set my curriculum, to recommend um, articles, to talk about articles with, to um, bounce research ideas off of perhaps do research with them. Um, I was finding my, my classroom mm-hmm. or, you know, your personal learning community or whatever you want to call it. But that, that's what that was, um, was making sure that I was learning in the broadest way possible. I think you're right. When you can't find something that's close by, many of us, and this is where I met Laura, as we find like to look to that collective somewhere else. And they were digitally aggregated and involved and interacting on Twitter's one space. Um, and there's like you, like I used to read, um, what got me really involved was blogging a bit more and reflecting and reading other people's kind of writing and blogs. And I, um, I'm grateful to have you in my learning network as well. And it's funny, like if we had an unofficial class, like I'd love us to have a yearbook from Twitter and then people can like identify the, who's the class clown and who's the, uh, so, but like, it's kind of uh, the things that you would continually go back to. Um, Cause what I think you really value is that continual learning, that lifelong learning aspect that you realized uh, back when you finished medical school, your learning's not over or just because you have a PhD doesn't mean you stop learning. Like you continually sharpen that tool. And I don't, I don't know if um, you being isolated got you thinking about that or what rekindles it that said, oh, I, I definitely have one doctor, a doctorate. I'd like to get another. I have a doctor, MD. I want to go and get my PhD. So um, what kind of sparked that for you when you came back into these, this learning space and learning community? Well, you know, some of it was um, the need to have a career. And what I found after I left medicine was, um, first of all, no one was hiring. It was, it was the, uh, the bad time um, with the economy. Um, but I didn't have skill sets that anyone thought was transferable. Mm-hmm. And the few interviews that I got were like people who were just curious I mean, I literally felt like uh, they were just watching me. It was some sort of freak show. Um, You were like an experiment to them? (laughs) Yes, yes. So I couldn't get a job, and I needed to work. And the only way I knew how to get a job... I mean, this is extremely limited, but it's it's what I was taught as going... You go to school, you get a degree. And that's... And ironic, it's crazy to think that someone went to PhD school thinking that that ends in a career. (laughs) Let that be a PSA to everyone that's thinking about a PhD, a doctor, an EDD. Doesn't mean you're going to have a career at the end. I know, that's (laughs) right. But I didn't do that research, okay? I was desperate, my head down. It's like, you've got to do something. So... So I went back to PhD. I mean, I went to medical school. That's what you do, right? So I go to PhD school. And I think a lot, a lot of the dragging of the feet during that process was being concerned about being employable when I got out. And so I literally dragged my feet and tried to grab as many experiences as possible to pad that resume so that when I got out, it didn't look like it was a complete blank. I had something between being a physician and being in the, the market. Um, but one of the things that I wish had been better at my school and at my program was to have frank conversations about, okay, Laura, what are you going to do when you get out? Because I was never going to be a faculty member. I was never going to move. And, you know, if somebody had 
told me that, you know, like if someone had had that conversation with me, then, I mean, it would have been very clear to everybody that I am not going to be a traditional um, tenure seeking, tenure track faculty member. So let's figure out how to make her employable in some other way and train her to think about other types of careers. Um, and that never happened. That's something that um, has happened by the grace of my friends and colleagues and people that I know literally from Twitter. Um, and also just trying to, to find a job. A, a lot of this is about being employable. Yeah, and what we call, it's labeled in um, higher and academia, alt-ac isn't alternative academic. It's different career paths, period, because you're not going to have everyone be a researcher, a tenure-track faculty. Like, that's an unrealistic goal for the amount of people that are coming out with these terminal degrees. And I think you're right. Like, there's so many other interesting things people can do with a research background at the master's and doctorate level. Um, so I think you're right. There's got to be some other way that we infuse the exploration of a career and how we get to point B, A, B. And they're like, well, you did this. So this equals this. And I was like, not necessarily. You might need other experiences. So in your PhD, you did other things that were cool and fun. And I got to do some collaborative things with you at conferences and professional associations. Um, but what was something that you kind of picked up when you were back, whether it's in your program or working at that campus that you thought about um, for your own career path? Like, is there something that kind of signaled what you wanted to do next or what interests you the most? No. <laughs> didn't think I, about it till later. <laughs> I, I was, I was literally just. Um, I didn't know. I knew I wanted a job. I knew I needed skill sets. I knew I needed to um, network, but I did not know what was available. And um, so I had thought that I had a um, postdoc set up. Um, and if you look at, at my resume, there's a three month fellowship on there. Um, but through no, it, it didn't have anything to do with me, but, um, the whole department around, um, online at my university got completely restructured mm -hmm. and my postdoc fell through about three months before I officially graduated. I was kind of thinking I was going down the pathway of educational research in digital pedagogies, either at my university or, you know, again, I'm, I'm not as mobile as most of academia is, but maybe with research, you know, sometimes you can get distance positions or, or other postdocs or, you know, that, that's what I thought I was going to be doing. And then literally the minute that I graduated, that whole plan fell apart. And I was a little mad about that because it's like I had been so afraid and I had been so focused on making sure that I had a job when I, when I got out. And then it literally fell through. <laughs> and so here I was in this position again. And, you know, and I took to Twitter and people popped up with projects. You were one of them. Mm -hmm. um, you popped up with a project. Someone else popped up at Chev. I mean, there were, there were these projects, but again, nothing... My concern during that time period, my desperation was to stay employed, stay in the game, keep my keep keep skin in the game, um, keep developing skills, stay active. Um, because the minute I ended up back in my kitchen cooking, I was afraid everyone was going to forget about me. I wouldn't have anything to contribute to the conversation, and I would be done again um, with nothing. Um, so my goal during that time period was just stay active, stay employed, 
um, keep having something to say to add to the conversation. And then that eventually um, evolved into a conversation with Whitney Kilgore. I actually just called her up to ask her how our kids were doing because I love hearing about our kids. And suddenly that ended up as a position at iDesign as a learning architect or a instructional designer or whatever we want to, to call those <laughs> folks nowadays. And I, I design yeah. is one of those OPMs, the, um, is it, what did it just say? We like to call it a partnership with higher education for the development of online and blended learning experiences. And you're helping other institutions and academies build online learning, blended learning, different kind of courses, um, and that sort of thing. And there's a growing market of a few of you. So you work with one of them and you helped develop a book recently, I think I saw. Yep. Yep. So um, my my position at iDesign has evolved even in the last two years from learning architect to senior learning architect, where I was managing other learning architects, but also um, larger projects. And then for the last year or so, I've been a what we've been calling a senior design strategist. So I've been working in kind of the business development realm, um, research and development, um, which is the big part. So doing some research, doing some writing, doing some um, kind of looking at the intersection between graphic design, instructional design, and um, technology, educational technology. So um, how can we create spaces that support the sort of pedagogies that we want? to support um, and playing around with that. And also how do you scale it to a large community of learning of learning architects, um, particularly that are working in distance. So what's the um, professional development look like? How do we support all of these people um, who are getting hired to do these positions to, to make sure that, that they've got what they need in order to do what they need to do. And that's where the idea book came from, um, cool. which is a, if, uh, at this point, it's now an open educational resource. Resource. It's something that we developed um, internally first, and then and then we've released it as an OER. And it's a living document of just curated resources. So rather than recreating the wheel, so many teaching and learning centers, and, or whatever you want to call it, at universities everywhere, do an amazing job of talking about different best practices and research and things like that, like on their websites. And yet getting people to go to them is sometimes very difficult, right? Or you've got all of these universities pretty much saying the same thing, although some of them might do it better or have, you know, it's, it's you know, there's a lot out there. So rather than recreating the wheel, it was more about pointing people in the direction of all of these available resources, like curating them, putting an introduction on the top of it, saying what these different resources are giving you um, that you can go check out. But it's a true, it's more of a, a collection or a curation project than anything else. And so because of that, it's living and um, we're adding to it. So love it. We're going to, we'll include a link for our listeners because I think it's a, probably an interesting resource that some others would like to check out as well. So. Yeah, and there's a place in there for offering recommendations or if you find mistakes in it or there's a place for you to fill out a Google form. And I look at those every Monday and update. So, I mean, it truly is living. 
Um, so what you've described to us and about your current role is you're doing some job crafting and it's um, a term of some of my friends that are in the Academy of Management have defined as like creating what you want to be doing that highlights your strengths, um, shaping the role that you have and it, your role is actually also, it sounds like a live document, uh, what you're doing as a position where you get to um, work with your team, your supervisor, that you kind of get to build the position that actually fits your talents really well and it kind of energizes and excites you. So that's really cool that you're doing this. Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky to have the support of, um, well, Whitney Kilgore, actually, mm-hmm. you know, to have her support um, in understanding, like figuring out what I can do. And they're giving me the space to do it, um, which has always been like, that's where I thrive. And I know that. Um, And I've worked in positions where I wasn't able to do it and it's gone horribly, absolutely horribly. Like I, that's probably, you know, you read articles on different ways that you should pick your jobs and whether you look at the personal relationships or whether you look at the, you know, the culture or, you know, or the job description. Um, but I think from now on in my life, as I, I move forward, I should not take any position where I don't think my supervisor is going to help me find the strengths and then just give me space to do what I do. So. No, and you make a good point. Like sometimes it's um, not the role per se. It's the, what will you be doing? What will, who you be working with? Um, and in your sense, like, it's almost kind of like, I think back to um, your idea of community is also belonging. Like if this fits you. So uh, I was reading uh, Brene Brown's uh, Brave in the Wilderness. And she talks about like defining belonging as real connection with others and it's authentic authentic and there's freedom and you're empowered and it sounds like you found kind of that in your career because I think um you've described it our roles professionally like it's what we do I don't know 80 percent of our life like it's a defining part of who we are as people um and that was really important to you it sounds like yeah and on top of that I have a weekend job too so I can't just have one job (laughs) what do you do on the weekend Uh, so on the weekends I do my own consulting work um, cool. Where I pretty much do what I do during the day, except I, I do it um, on my own time too, um, which is super great because uh, so I, I do a lot of faculty development around instructional design or like um, I, I tend to work with medical schools. So it's, it's about like, so here's where medical education is now. Here are the kind of the big, big trends. Um, um, and here's how different different people are are actually um, create like they're they're taking the trends and and making it work for their institution. So it's kind of interesting because abstractly, it's exactly what the idea book is, right? Like it's the idea of here are the big trends, or here's what we're looking for, and here are how different people are expressing it. Well, that's kind of like what my faculty development tends to look like um, as as far as as the side jobs. But I love it because. I, I, they tend to be, those jobs tend to be different, um, different folks, different, um, slightly different lenses or different approaches than what I'm doing during the week. And it all just mixes and matches and grows on each other so well. And so I spend a lot of time reading and thinking and trying to figure out this big picture that is higher ed. And it makes me happy. 
That's really awesome. I think it's amazing that you found uh, neat pockets that your worlds have converged a little bit. And I think it's great that you can speak medical talk with them. So I'm sure it gives you some great street cred with the healthcare providers sometimes. Yeah, it's the street cred. Like, yeah, yeah, it is street cred. There is something to be said for having that MD when you're working in the healthcare education field. Absolutely. So... You had a fun and winding path, and I'm, you're, I'm sure your career path is not over, but I, I asked you to talk about your experience because I think it helps folks thinking about their next trajectory, where they are now, what they want to be doing. What is one interesting or little-known kind of nugget you picked up along the way to either help you out or things that you take with you now as you think about your own kind of the windy row of career ahead? Mm-hmm. So probably the biggest learning point was the whole, like, stay in the game. Um, Figure out what you do well and what people need and find your niche. Um, And my, where I learned that was, like, how I got into the Twitter game in the first place. So, um, you know, I knew I, I needed to start connecting in these ed tech, OER, connected learning sort of fields. And just to be connected to someone at work um, was not going to be enough. Like, I wanted a personal relationship with these folks. And so it's like, okay, Twitter might be a decent place for it. And it all really started this one time where my, my advisor said, hey, they're streaming the um, learning analytics conference. Why don't you go sit in there and watch it for eight hours and then tell me what it's supposed to be like. And the only way I could stay awake was I started live tweeting everything that was going on in the stream conference. So even though it was like up in Madison or somewhere like that, and I was in Virginia, they thought I was in the room. And actually George Siemens like called me out as saying, thank you so much for all of your live tweeting that you're doing. And that's when it triggered for me that this was actually a commodity. Like this was a useful thing. Not, it was not only helpful for me because it, it kept me awake and it kept me focused, but it also happened to be something I was really good at, this idea of taking these big things and, and getting the essence into a tweet. And I had enough memory where I could like live tweet pretty well. Then obviously people at conferences want their stuff out there. So it was working for everyone. Then I was like, that's a really interesting niche. And so when I went to conferences, I start, I treated it like a profession. And I remember sitting next to Bonnie Stewart and she's like, it's so funny to watch you do this because you, you keep it real. Like you're literally treating this like a job. And I'm like, it is my job. Live tweeting this conference, ET4 online. Live tweeting ET4 online was my job. And so I live tweeted that conference and that's how it all got started for me. Um, and so, you know, when you are in a situation where it's not all just laid out for you, where you are carving your own path, figure out what you do, but also what can help you. Like, don't just, just, you know, do what people want you to do. Cause that just never works out. Like it has to be something that is useful to you that you're good at and is useful to other people. And when you find that sweet spot, run with it. Absolutely. I love it. Sneaking into a back channel, whether it's on Twitter or a back door, whether it's somewhere else that you want to show up to is really important to be in those spaces. And I think uh, the secrets that when people said why you're on Twitter and you are very similar to me, I take notes like the tweets are for for me. So Mm -hmm. and you synthesize the same. Um, And so I think having that back and forth with 
folks putting messages out there, giving opinions is always valid. And I've appreciated that from getting to know you online, offline, all the lines in real life is online. And uh, I think um, that's a good suggestion for folks. So whether it's on Twitter or somewhere else, just show up, talk, ask questions, think insightful things and be there. I like that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about fun things you're doing these days. You do read a lot, but is there anything, a story, um, whether it's TV, books, podcasts that are kind of interesting you want to share with our listeners? Oh, I've got all the books. I know. Just like, like stacked up here, ready to read. The one that I need to read is um, Questlove has a book about creativity, and I've heard so many good things about it from people who, yeah. And it's a, I, I think I'm going to do it as an audible book because I need something when I'm driving the kids around. Um, so I, that's, that's like big on my list. I also have this like great book called One Track Mind, which is drawing the New York subway. And it's mm-hmm. all these sketches from the inside of the subway, um, which I like subways. I like maps. Um, I think it actually plays well to um, instructional design and thinking about course design, things like subway maps, things like information design. So um, what's conveyed by these images and just how things are organized on a page and how are they doing that? I saw that you were doing some doodling graphics. So I hope that you draw a subway map of your own learning theories because a friend of mine did one on, he's created one for student affairs and he took their learning theories into a subway mappy. Ooh. And I'll share that with you. Yeah. yeah. So I think you'd be, cool. I think you'd be into something like that. Yeah. So that's like one, one area. Then I've gotten into graphic design. So I have these designers dictionary of colors and um, discussions of how grids work um, and idea books and things like that. So I got that. My favorite book that I've been reading on airports and showing to people is e-learning and the science of instruction which is uh, Ruth Colvin Clark and Richard Mayer. And this is the nuts and bolts book for an instructional design, which I wish that I had had a couple of years ago. Because <laughs> my, my, ex- my expertise is in, like, I'm, I'm like learning theory and instructional approaches and, and philosophy. And I could sit here and we could have a talk all day long about philosophy. But when I came down to sit down like, to design my course and I'm like, what, you want voiceover PowerPoints? What? <laughs> what what's that how do you do that oh my gosh I, I had I mean I figured it out and I did it but this book would have made it so much easier <laughs> hey, I'll put that on my list and I'll add to our notes because that's I need to read that as well this summer so this is good. oh my gosh okay, and it's an, e- it's an easy book to read and it's all laid out so nicely and the research in it that is a solid book Good. Like, if you tried to go through and try to read all the articles cited in this, I mean, you'd be old by the time you got okay, done. Okay, I, I definitely need to pick that one up then. Okay, good. Yeah. I love yeah. it. Um, when you're uh, hanging out with friends, family, colleagues, what's your go-to beverage of choice? Well, it changes, but for the summer, it's going to be a ginger gin and tonic. Mm. So, we use this, this Japanese craft gin called Roku Gin. And my husband makes his own tonic. Like we filter the quinine and everything. And it's because we have like all these Erlenmeyer flasks and beakers laying around the place. (laughs) And so every time you walk past the kitchen, everyone in the family has to shake the jar. (laughs) That's a good idea. I want to, I want to get that uh, recipe for you. Yeah. Yeah, We've done some good, but not tonic. So uh, that's definitely. Real tonic is 
is great. So we got the real tonic, the Roku gin. You um, slice up and mash some real ginger, like fresh ginger. Mm. It's so good. Love it. Really good. Yeah. Now I want a beverage. Um, This is great. I will definitely have to take up that tonic recipe then. Good. Excellent. Um, Before we wrap up, and I appreciate you sharing your time, your story, your path. I think it's great hearing how Dr. Dr. Laura does it. Um, What is bringing you joy these days? What's something that's uh, making you smile? My kids. And I mean, I know that sounds like a really, um, you know, trite or, you know, of course, of course, the family brings brings her joy, um, but I'm not usually one of those moms. Um, but <laughs> I love for I love my kids. But um, they're in middle school, and they're starting the summer. And from an instructional design standpoint, it's so fascinating because you know it's kind of one of those things where it's like, okay, well, we need to bring balance between alone time. Downtime, personal, like, you know, a little boredom is actually a good thing. Um, but we need, we also need stimulating experiences with other people. Plus the girls are close friends. I need to make sure that they're in the same space having together time. And so trying to orchestrate all of this while at the same time, like really listening to them and like, okay, well, what brings you joy? And trying to figure out, okay, so so you've got it at the simple picture of what brings you joy and what's interesting. It's like, well, where does this fit into the big picture of your path? And it's been so interesting working with my eighth grader. We've gone through so many different trends. It's like one summer it was all about nature and being outside which is totally cool. I'm like, okay, organic farmer, here we come. You know, so I'm like trying to set up all this and she got to the end of the summer and she's like, mom, that was super awesome. Not for me. I'm like, okay, well, there goes my naturalist. You know, so it's like, okay, where is this all going? <laughs> well, we figured out, like she figured, she figured it out. It would never occur to me. She loves languages. Who knew? I mean, there's nothing in the past to, fi- you know, like, I mean, we do a lot of travel. Um, she and I both love books that have maps in them. I mean, if it's got a map in the front of it, then definitely we're going to read it. Um, but you know, why languages? And so, but it is, and that's what she's interested in. So we're sending her to an um, immersive Spanish camp this summer. Um, so, you know, but just trying to like feel this out and see it just not only from a mom perspective where you just want your students, your, your students, you want your children to do so well and be so happy and have everything that they need, but also from a uh, instructor or instructional design perspective. Okay. So let's, let's look at this. Let's look at how these things play out and how things need to balance in life. Um, so it's a fascinating time to be a mom in my family right now. That's awesome. I think so. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. Uh, your journey is not over. Look forward to hearing where you take things. And if you want to leave any um, information where people can reach you, whether it's chat, uh, work, contract, or say hi, um, we'll put your information in the show notes for everyone. Great. Sounds good. You know you can find me on Twitter. Definitely. Always. She'll, she will put out uh, Google Guacamole's handle for sure. So awesome. uh, she'll tweet you and thank you for listening. So thank you so much for talking with us today and uh, we'll welcome you back anytime. You have something to bring to the table. So come on back. All right. Thanks. We'll do. Be sure to catch the next podcast episode by subscribing to In Vino Fab, wherever you find and subscribe to podcasts. 
Find us on Twitter and Instagram at InVinoFab, and we'll always welcome love and messages by email at InVinoFabulum at gmail.com. Cheers. Thank you.